sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-editor of Film Comment. This week, I'm on the ground in Berlin, Germany, where the 2024 Berlinale kicked off on February 15th. The festival runs through February 25th, and this year's lineup features new works by Mati Diop, Olivier Assayas, Bruno Dumont, Sai Ming Liang, Hong Sang Soo, Ruth Beckerman, and many other filmmakers. Throughout the week, the Film Comment crew will be reporting on each day's new premieres at the Berlinale through podcasts, dispatches, and interviews. Today's episode features a Critics' Roundtable preceded by a special bonus, a conversation between Leslie Kleinberg, the president of Film at Lincoln Center, and Christine Vachon, the producer known for co-founding the company Killer Films with Pamela Koffler and for her long-standing collaboration with the filmmaker Todd Haynes. Leslie and Christine talk about the role of the Berlinale's European film market in the industry, how Christine has acquired funding for independent cinema for over three decades, and what it feels like for Christine to be nominated for her first ever Academy Award for the film Past Lives, which she produced. We hope you enjoy this double-decker episode of the podcast and make sure to subscribe to the Film Comment Letter and the Film Comment Podcast to keep up with all our coverage from the 2024 Berlinale. Hi, I'm here uh, at the Westin Hyatt here at the Berlin Film Festival with uh, producer Christine Vachon, and I'm um, really thrilled to have her. Although she is very tight for time, so we're gonna we're, we're trying we're two New Yorkers. We'll try to talk fast so that you everyone else can understand us. Um, Christine, I'm going to just start by asking questions about the last year, about 2023. Um, you had at Sundance Past Lives. I was here with you at the Berlinale last year with the opening night film. Um, she came to me and um, then, of course, May, May, December at Cannes and then the opening yeah. night of the New York Film Festival, May, December. You're nominated now for your first Academy Award uh, for Past Lives. So it's been, seems like terrific year, 2023. And you're coming off of Sundance with A Different Man, which is uh, also premiered here at uh, Berlin. Um, tell me a little bit about last year and kind of the wave of the you've been riding for a while and um maybe you can say a little bit about i i noticed that i know that two of those films weren't really sold right away um it's not like you've made these films and it's just an automatic thing there's a lot of work to get you there but also once the films are made even when they go to a big festival there's so much work after that and i'm wondering if you can just kind of talk about that process of being at festivals with these films and then what happens after well, I think the movie you're referring to is May-December, which we took to the Cannes Film, Film Festival uh, with plenty of international sales, um, you know, under its belt, but no North American sale. And we made a North American sale 
um, while we were while we were at the Cannes Film Festival to Netflix, and Netflix took the film uh, for North America, which is not a very usual thing that they do, um, and uh, you know it was a really it was a really wonderful partnership. Um, you know, it's been an extraordinary year. Uh, the strikes have made it bittersweet because we have, you know, that has put a big, um, you know, uh, a, 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 it made it very difficult to promote both movies, both May, December and Past Lives without being able to involve the actors. Um, and in May, December's case, the writer as well. So look, we're, enormously relieved that the strikes ended when they did. I wonder if, you know, uh, May, December especially suffered a little bit, uh, because it took, it took such, took the time it took, but it took a long time. And Christine, in your experience, where do you sit seeing the landscape in terms of acquisitions and distribution of, of your independent films that are being made now? Uh, you bring them to all these major film festivals around the world. Um, how have you seen the market change? I mean, I think it's one of those, you know, one of those French proverbs, uh, the more it changes, the more it stays the same. Um, you know, I feel like the market is still looking for things that maybe feel a little familiar. Uh, you know, movies that are fairly loud in terms of their cast, uh, maybe that are that skew in a comic way, that feel like crowd pleasers. I think the quieter movies take maybe a distributor with a little bit more vision to to kind of understand what they could what they could be potentially. Um, I don't know. It's very hard for me to say exactly how the market has changed. I know there's a fair amount of doom and gloom around uh, people want less and they want to pay less for it, which also translates into production. People want to make less and make it for less money. Um, so I guess we're all sort of experiencing a general tightening. But when you go to a film festival and you see a sort of rapturous response to a movie, um, it just always feels great. Well, I was going to ask you about the, the impact of film festivals still on, you know, the life of a film, and uh, it's still the place for films to get discovered, et cetera, but uh, with films, some films not getting a theatrical le release, uh, do you see the role of film festivals uh, being this great opportunity for filmmakers to have that moment of being in that crowd? I mean, film festivals definitely are one of those last bastions that allow a filmmaker, you know, especially a filmmaker who takes their movie kind of on tour, they can, uh, you know, almost replicate a theatrical experience that way. Um, so it also creates community, which I think is so important for, for filmmakers, especially ones starting out today who uh, are, are sort of trying to figure out how to have sustainable careers. That's a big part of it. Well, you've had a, a career that sustained quite a long time, and I just wanted to read something that I thought was just a, a great quote of yours from last year at Cannes, which you basically, when asked about how things were changing, you said that you'd always been accustomed to pivoting endlessly and finding opportunities no matter what the sea winds bring. <laughs> um, and maybe you could talk a little bit about that. How have you learned over the years to adjust, uh, you know, either projects you're looking for, projects you're selling, or, you know, what do you mean by that? 
I think that Killer has stayed in business as long as it has. Um, we could call it pivoting. We could also just say, you know, out of great disruption comes great opportunity. Um, I think right now when there's a lot of sort of, you know, speculation about, well, you know, uh, there's going to be less money, uh, which means less projects um, and less money for projects. I think Killer can say, well, you know what? You know, we know how to do that. We really have built a career on listening to the marketplace, understanding what a film's inherent monetary value is, at least initially, and doing our best to take that information and make the best story possible. Well, I think you always manage to identify not only incredible stories, but you work with some of the most extraordinary filmmakers, and your career has been filled with uh, these great collaborations that have, have really sustained you. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk just for just a second while I had one more minute with you, um, just about the Berlin Film Festival itself. We're here at the Berlin Ali, and um, what is your connection to this film festival, and, and what do you think, what's the place that this film festival plays in the sort of, what's the role, I guess, that it plays in the sort of festival circuit, would you say? I mean, I have to say, you know, 20, 30 years ago when I first started making movies, we brought everything from Sundance to Berlin. And Berlin was always our first taste of an international market and international audiences and how would they respond to what we had made. Um, and then over the years when the festival started drawing lines in the sand about who could come and who couldn't come, and which I thought was a great misfortune because, because really there's so much like-mindedness between programmers at various festivals and to start saying you can only go to that one and you can't go to that one I don't think does anybody any good. So then for years we didn't come because, you know, Sundance still was a place where we needed to go to sell our films uh, uh, domestically and we weren't, we didn't get the Berlin bump anymore, which, as I said, was was kind of tragic. Um, we've had a few movies here now that have moved from Sundance to Berlin, which I think is fantastic. Uh, Berlin has always been that kind of, you know, of the big three, the the one that has like an edge. Um, you know, it, it's in it's in a terrific city. It's in a city where the um, where the 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 people, the audiences are often, you know, built from the people who live here, which is a little harder to say about Cannes or Venice. Uh, so Berlin has always been very important to us. I just hope it can continue to be. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and um, congratulations on a, on a terrific year. 23 and 24 is already kicking off to be pretty terrific. So congratulations. Thank you. This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is supported by Netflix, presenting Maestro. Nominated for seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Actor Bradley Cooper, and Best Actress Carey Mulligan. Time Magazine calls the film superb and deeply felt, while ABC News says Cooper brings everything he's got to the dream assignment, using all the tools of cinema, including revolutionary sound design. Maestro is also Oscar-nominated for its stunning sound achievement. Awards Daily declares that the star director gives the performance of a lifetime 
as he completely transforms into legendary conductor-composer Leonard Bernstein with expert makeup design from Oscar-nominated industry legend Kazuhiro. Maestro, now available on Netflix. All right. So this is the fourth podcast I'm recording at this year's Berlinale, and I described the crew I have with me for today's episode to someone as the setup for a joke. A German, a Frenchman, a New York-based Indian, and a London-based Trinidadian walk into the Grand Hyatt in Berlin. What happens next? Let's find out. Uh... Antoine, do you want to start off by introducing yourself? I'm Antoine Thirion, and I'm a retired uh, critic and a mostly programmer. Hi, I'm Frederick Jäger. I'm retiring actually after this Berlinale as a film critic and programmer. Uh -huh. So last chance to hear me on the Film pod Common podcast. What? <laughs> Not even on the podcast? Anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that, Frederick. I'm Jonathan Ali, a uh, programmer and uh, writer, uh, Third Horizon Film Festival, uh, writer for Sight and Sound, among others. Great. Uh, wonderful to have the three of you here. I'd love for us to start by talking about a movie I saw last night that I really loved that has emerged as one of my favorites here, which is Pepe. Maybe, Jonathan, you, you also saw it. Maybe you want to... Yeah, last night I saw Pepe, the new uh, film playing competition by uh, Nelson De Los Santos. Uh, Arias uh, from the Dominican Republic. I was really looking forward to this film. I loved his first feature, uh, Cocote, which won the Golden Leopard at, uh, at Locarno. Um, a visionary film, just wonderful. But yeah, I was disappointed uh, by Pepe. It's the story of a hippo told from this hippo's point of view. Um, and it's a hippo that belonged to uh, Pablo Escobar, the uh, infamous uh, Colombian drug lord. And it tells the story of this family of hippos from when they were taken in, uh, the film says, Southwest Africa, Namibia, former German colony uh, in Africa, and brought across the ocean uh, to Colombia. And it tells the story of how these uh, hippos came to be part of his menagerie of animals. And then eventually they went off into the wild. And uh, they're now, an, this is based on true events, and they're now an invasive, invasive species there and causing havoc. Um, and basically, that's it. What I've just told you really uh, kind of sums up the film. Does it sum up the film? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think there's no. much Not more at going all. on. The there film promises a lot going on in this movie. I, 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 I would love to, you know, get into it. Frederick. Be told because um, <laughs> it, it promises a lot. There's a there's a wonderful scene in the opening sequence in Namibia where uh, they're on a bus and there's um, German safari tourists on safari. And they've got a German safari tour guide and he's got a local assistant who's a guide. And he asks the, the, the local assistant to explain some things about his culture and, uh, uh, you know, uh, to uh, the tourists. And he responds in the driest German. And every sentence he ends by saying, boss, boss, boss. And it's hilarious. And it's just so the political satire is on point. I mean, everything about Nelson's previous film in terms of, you know, uh, form and, you know, the way he uses or misuses form is all there. Uh, he mixes 16 mil with, with digital photography, you know, mixes up aspect ratios, black and white color photography. And uh, he does it in a way that just feels so, so natural, like it never feels forced, you know. 
but I just feel that this story is undercooked and I just didn't get the the depth of it. I didn't get what he was trying to say in the way that uh, uh, Kokote for me really was a profound story and just had so much to say uh, about history and violence and uh, colonialism. I didn't get any of that here. Well, I I think that the film is forced, actually, but it's forcing into opening up, opening up very different forms. So you mentioned a lot of the elements that I saw, too. There's also the very parodic beginning, but then you also have a documentary part, which is actually, for me, the core of the movie, which um, goes to... Um, um, into into a deepness that is not so much connected anymore with the previous moments and maybe the whole doesn't sum up to something like a message or a kind of um, uh, revelation but I think the 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 texture of this, uh, of this and the hybrid nature of um, combining so many different perspectives, visions and uh, variations of looking at fiction and um, the relationship of fiction to this uh, to this true to this true fact is quite exhilarating for me it was absolutely a highlight of this competition when you refer to documentary you mean the audio uh, based sequences or because I was actually not it wasn't entirely clear to me what would be considered documentary yeah, in this film. Yeah, I'm not film. actually sure exactly when you say documentary sequences, yeah. what specifically Because there are scenes where the screen is kind of, you see white static and you hear... Uh, I mean, there's, there's found footage, there's, there's, there's uh, uh, news footage and audio that we hear from time to time. Right, the found audio and there's some news footage. The question that came to mind for me was how much of the hippo footage is documented or... No, there seems to be a lot of effects, no? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there I was wondering to be because... because uh, I mean, I, I thought he set himself a lovely challenge, which was, uh, let me see how many ways I can shoot hippos without this coming across like a nature documentary. And it never does. I mean, there's one scene A couple where of times it feels a little David Attenborough, but most of the times, not. Well, in the in the moments that it does, I think it's very explicitly critiquing yes, a kind yes, of exactly. anthropological yes, gaze. Yes. Like there's this, I mean, the stunning shot where you see moonlight sort of bi bisecting a body of water and a hippo passes through it. So that has to be VFX, but it all looks so beautiful and natural. Mm. You know, there is this sort of crackling feel of film, uh, of celluloid, and nothing ever looks fake, even though clearly, I mean, there's also fictional scenes set in a village and uh, about the villagers and how the hippos are kind of um, intervening in the lives of fishermen in Colombia. But there is, the film is both about so many different things and encompasses so many different styles, but also feels so cohesive texturally. And that really, um, I found so mesmerizing. And I think just to add to what Frederick and Jonathan said to for a listener, you know, to try to paint a picture of this film, which is very hard is that there are these sequences from the point of view of the hippo where there's a voiceover that reminded me of the voiceover in Delmay. 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 Exactly. It's and in a, fact, in fact. Like an ancestral uh, voice from uh, Yeah. I mean, the I mean these two continent. films, you have yeah. reverse journeys because in Dahomey, you have artifacts being returned. Going back home. Going back home. And in Pepe, you have something being taken from Africa going... Exactly. And ruminating the on yeah. the colonial the, basis yeah, of that. And the energy of the film is quite 
the contrary, no? Yes. I, I don't know. I need to see it again because I think it's really complex film and, uh, uh, and I, I don't think I've grasped uh, it totally yet. So I really want to see it again. Uh, but I, yeah, I felt almost like a, you know, that kind of international multi co-production thing yes. really turned into something critical and actually uh, like escalating uh, the situation. And I like that sort of uh, harshness. And it nimbly like brings together so many different contexts. The story of this one hippo mm-hmm. brings together so much about you know, colonialism and crime in Latin America, you know, drug trafficking, the lives of provincial fisher people, uh, environmental kind of themes. Mm. It is really a film that, and this is why other than the beauty of it, I was really so taken with it, is that it's the kind of film that just lays out how everything is connected by capitalism and colonialism, like we are all caught up in these fluid networks and how something as banal as going to a zoo and looking at an animal can actually unveil how the world works. And totally. the zoo, the zoo thing is, uh, is pretty important these days. There's a Karmaka film. Uh, I know Jessica Rinland has finished a film that's going to be uh, screened somewhere yes. uh, later. That's an amazing, amazing movie. Anna Vaz's previous film, Anna of course. Yeah. yeah, it is Night, Night in America. America. Yeah. 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 And, and that film reminds me, I, I mean, the, the story of uh, Pablo Escobar's Hippo, uh, I learned about it through um, a film that was made by Eleanor Saint-Aignan, who had have made uh, Camping du Lac recently, and she made a film called uh, The Wild Foxes. And it's a thing about feral animals. Uh, and the foxes are the foxes that the dr- uh, dealers are spreading, um, uh, traveling with in their car so that the dogs don't uh, smell the, the drug thing. Yeah. And then they release it in the Belgian countryside. And so now there's a whole population of uh, foxes in the Belgian, at the Belgian border with friends. So, so, and, and so she brings uh, Escobar's hippo uh, the same way, you know. Laura, Laura Huertas Millan, the uh, Colombian oh. artist filmmaker, she has a short film About where that. she investigates this as well and, yeah. you know, um, tells it from a Colombian, you know, perspective. Interesting, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I think that the temperature mostly seems to be pretty warm oh. for Pepe. Everybody uh, should see it. I, I, you know, I'm Jonathan's happy to see it again. I'm happy to see it again. And, you know, it, it, it is, as you said, texturally, it's beautiful and, you know, I mean, I was very happy to be carried along almost literally on the river, you know, and I'd be happy to, to do it again and see yeah. if there's more there. Uh, maybe we can talk about another film now that also uh, I loved, which is the new Hong Sang-soo film, A Traveler's Needs. I I have to admit that I had a little bit of Hong fatigue coming into this festival. I was like... What's going on, Did they come? <laughs> I was like, I don't know if I can watch and talk about another Hong film. It's just the, the pace is too much for me. And this one is so different than the last few ones. And it's so always. funny. More so, I don't think it's always the case. I is think it is in focus. I mean, the video in this one is particularly uh, cheap. It is cheap, yeah. yeah. I, w- I was seeing uh, it at the Berlinale Palace. I was like in the fourth row and I could see really the pixels. <laughs> and like, <laughs> which is quite fun, I would say. Uh, but maybe Frederick, you want to say a little bit about this one and what you thought of it? 
So this one um, reunites Hong with Isabelle Huppert, who's been in two of his previous movies, which I think are among um, his very good ones, um, which are In Another Country and Claire's Camera. Um, this one, um, she goes back um, to Korea and she is... Uh, it seems like maybe a French teacher and we'll find out during the film whether she really is a French teacher because things are not as they seem in this, in this movie. And, um, and we have the, we have her story and then, um, a story with, um, a younger man she's in a relationship with. We find out. We're not um, sure. We're not I sure think, about the nature of the relationship. A relationship <laughs> is a fair way to describe it. The nature of the relationship, it, I think, remains ambiguous. <laughs> they have it's, a relationship. Yeah, yeah, I know. We're not supposed to spoil. Um, but you'll you'll enjoy watching it anyhow. Um, it's a very intimate um, Hong film again. And, you know, as his cinema is very much about repetition and variations of repetitions, it's always fun to see the nuances. And anyone who listens to this podcast and hasn't seen three or four five films by Hong will have difficulties kind of catching the um, the fun of it but they should and they have probably um, <laughs> so I think this is actually a very fun exercise and I think it's a it has a lot to do with what Isabelle Huppert does because she's so comical in the in her in her ways she can be in other films too but um, she's very good at it when she doesn't take herself seriously and Hong doesn't either and I think this this um, fun of pretending to be very serious about something you're not serious about is um, where you can get a lot of uh, yeah moments out of it I think very well said about Huppert because I also had Huppert fatigue by the time when I was about <laughs> to happens. watch this film. And you know, I think that she's often nowadays deployed to kind of campy ends. Mm. And I loved watching her just be funny, yeah. you know, not be a... But she's, she's, she's not only funny, she's, uh, she's very weird, I she, think. Uh, yes. She's very... Uh, but in a, a low-key way, instead of yeah. some kind of very staged way, yeah. she's just like this kooky foreign lady pottering about in Korea. French. Specifically French. <laughs> but she's very French and they're all talking about emotions. I think that's, that's about that's, and that's, about authenticity of emotions. And I think that's yeah. the, the I mean, it's of course it has to do with the distance between the French and the Koreans and how they are able to speak about their emotions and whether speaking about your, you know, your true authentic um, emotion is something that is true and authentic or maybe just a repetition of um, something you've heard before. Yes. But there's a lot to... Mm. Yeah, because uh, the, the translation uh, technique that, that is invented in the film is uh, having uh, uh, the Koreans speak about their, speak about their uh, emotion and then she writes down on index cards uh, like a, a paragraph <laughs> that they have to learn and repeat. So you don't know how that works. But in some ways, like it, it really makes... I was thinking about Jacques Rancière, uh, uh, the ignor ignorant uh, master, uh, which is like this technique, this French teacher went to, uh, I think, uh, Netherlands uh, and taught French to people who was, were not... Like, he, he didn't know the Dutch language uh, and they didn't know the French language uh -huh. and they had to find a common ground. And emotions here are the common ground. Um, no, it's a, it's a very... Uh, yeah, it's a very yeah. beautiful, it's a very uh, beautiful technique, and uh, 
Yeah. And if I'd like to use that, talking about emotions, to jump off this film and just um, shout out um, the best of the fest for me, um, which is sex. <laughs> um, and I know um, when you start talking about the film, I know there are very, no, there are very low-hanging fruit uh, jokes with this title. Um, it's a Nor Norwegian film. It's by Dog-Yuan Haugerud, and it's um, in Panorama, and it's actually about two chimney sweepers who start talking about their emotions and one of them had a dream about being looked at by David Bowie as if he were a woman and he questions his what what is this desire looking at me and what does this desire do with me and then the the other chimney sweeper tells him that he just slept with a man and they're both heterosexual family fathers mm. they are not questioning their sexuality but now they're starting to talk about it and this is a very precise sociological and psychological study of what it means to be a normal guy mm. um, in your end of 40s probably very um, yeah very people who are very solid in their existence, in their middle-class existence, and who start to question that and the relationship with their wives and their children come into that. And it's um, really fantastic comedy drama um, that you'll have to look out for. And this is in Panorama, you said? It is. Maybe, could you just actually just talk for like a couple minutes about the place of queer cinema at the Berlinale? And it's not a good one. <laughs> um, no, you have to see that um, the current um, festival team has not pushed for more inclusion of um, queer cinema. Unfortunately, you have it every year. You have the best queer films um, are relegated to Panorama, which has this history of showing uh, queer films. And as all sections uh, get smaller and smaller, also the place of queer cinema has gotten smaller. And unfortunately, you have to see that the, the competition, which is a place um, to um, push films into the world, is still a place of very... Uh, very many examples of male gaze, whether directly mm. in the stories or just the kind of visions that films have of what is a potent genius male, you know, kind of cinematic vision, like um, Viktor Kosakowski for Architekton, for example, which is just, you know, showing you how all men know what real cinema is about. So um, I'm so glad yeah. you feel this way because I... If I could just speak about architecture for a second, and maybe we don't have to go into too much depth into it right now. I just found it so dull. and It is. <laughs> and I'm, it's so, I didn't even think about it as a male gaze. And it's so you know interesting that you put it that way because that's making me think of it differently. Because there is a kind of, you know, this idea that you, we can look at pictures of rocks and then extrapolate some kind of commentary about, why we build structures out of concrete this the grandiosity of thinking that you can say so much with so little uh is just that something about that really rubbed me the wrong way in the film which essentially is a montage of rocks and structures with a little bit of documentary footage of Kosakovsky talking to an architect and it's a film about civilization exactly and then you're supposed to in the end, there's an epilogue that kind of positions it as a film about civilization. And I'm like, you can't string together images of rocks and have it be a film about civilization. Um, so I'm just, I just needed to back you <laughs> up there. Uh, but 
let's go to a film that Jonathan and Antoine uh, have seen and liked, which is... L'Homme Vertige, Tales of a City. And this is actually a film in which uh, concrete and architecture features a lot. Uh, but in a We're doing so well with like segues. <laughs> I love yeah, it. <laughs> but I, I'm sure in a very different way to uh, the Kostakovsky. This is not in any way a monumentalist type of film saying anything uh, grand about human civilization uh although i mean it is profound in its own way but uh in a more modest and focused way this is the first feature by uh, a documentary filmmaker from guadeloupe uh in the caribbean um uh mallory elwa paisley and guadeloupe for those of you who don't know uh is a french department so it is part of france i mean it it's uh, on paper is France, but of course it's thousands of kilometers away across the Atlantic <laughs> Ocean in the Caribbean, and um, it essentially retains the status of a colony. Uh, and it is poor, it is expensive. Uh, the people who live there uh, live very straightened and narrow lives. Many of them are very poor. Um, and those who can afford, you know, flee to the metropole. Um, and uh, those who are stuck there you know, uh, live very difficult lives. And uh, Mallory herself uh, has lived abroad, but she returned uh, to to uh, Martinique, uh, sorry, to Guadeloupe several years ago to live, and she, she she's based there now. And she started making this documentary in 2016 in uh, the main the main uh, city in in Guadeloupe, Pointe-à-Pitre, uh, where she lives. And she lives in in uh, uh, an apartment block, which is very, you know like one of these are uh, sort of. British style council housing estates, uh, <clears throat> and the film is is uh, a documentary mix of observation, testimony, some sort of performance staged sequences, where uh, Mallory uh, interacts with, uh, for the most part, homeless people, mm -hmm. men and women who live on the street. Uh, but also there's one particular character uh, who uh, has his own apartment in one of these buildings, but he's very old, he's very poor. Um, he used to work in, in construction and he now has um, a, a lung illness um, because of all of his years working in construction and he's inhaled a lot of dust. Mm -hmm. um, and when he was a young man, he left his wife and children and he heeded uh, the call of Cuba and he went to, to, to serve the revolution. And then he returned after that to uh, to Guadeloupe, where uh, he was not uh, really welcome back with open arms. So this is a film about uh, marginalized lives, and it's a beautifully poetic and a wonderfully uh, intimate and beautifully observed film. Uh, formally, it really doesn't have a sort of classical structure. I mean, it's it's informed by, and the filmmaker said this in the Q and A yesterday. She's very much in, in, influenced by. Uh, the Haitian uh, theory of spiralism, which is a very much sort of anti-colonial kind of uh, refusal of of uh, classical narrative, uh, um, both artistically and politically, uh, and it it's it's a it's a, 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 a theory espoused by the French writer Frank Etienne, among others, um, and so you don't get you know, the narrative arcs of every character from beginning mm. to end. You don't get each one getting an equal share of the story. Some of them have only, you know, moments. Yeah. The two female characters, for example, they hardly ever speak. Some of these characters, you know, they have uh, addictions. They're really, really living rough, but she gives them their space. She gives them their time. Uh, and they give so much to the camera, to her and to us. 
I'm not sure I can add anything, but if you want uh, another to see another French film that makes uh, French looks really bad, you, sh you should all go see Direct Action, uh, Ben Russell's uh, next new film with uh, Guillaume Caillot, which is about the autonomous zone uh, in uh, Notre-Dame-des-Landes uh, that became an autonomous zone after a community uh, fought against an airport project. So if you think about Ogawa's Sanrizuka series, it's like a happy version of that. But it ends in uh, like a uh, police repression of this uh, eco eco activist group, and it's very uh, scary. You should uh, you should all see it. I'm yeah. um, I'm lining up to see it tomorrow. I'm, it's one of my very anticipated films, uh, and I think it'll be timely. So totally. I'll make sure to catch that. Uh, thank you all of you for joining you. me in this lightning fast podcast. We did it, y'all. Anytime. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. 